and this one likewise, uh, because we will be, as it said on the screen, dealing with the call of recognising Pastor David Butterfield uh, to become a full-time associate here at Sunnybank. And to that we need um, a quorum of 25% of our members. So we're needing at least 80 people, I think, to be here. Um, so if you are a member, please schedule some time this afternoon. 1.30 is our kickoff time and it'd be great if we have that number of people here at 1.30 so that we can start early and finish earlier than um, we otherwise would. Also this afternoon we'll be recognising or potentially recognising again two of our elders who are continuing, Scott Carpenter and Chiwa, bless you Karen, um, who likewise have been serving as elders faithfully for three years and they come up for reappointment. Elders are appointed for a term of three years in our church and need to return for um, recognition and reaffirmation. Um, so again, very important, we need 80%, uh, we need 25% of our members to be present for that quorum as well. And so that's in our meeting. There'll also be uh, other matters that will be reported on and particularly we will talk about Hertford Street and I'll give an update on where we are up to with that. And, and then following this afternoon, I take some time in our Sunday services perhaps to update uh, other folk as well. Um, but if you want most information, please come to the meeting this afternoon. Um, likewise, I know it's going to be distracting and simply by me mentioning it, it's going to draw attention to it. So I'm going to mention it, then I just simply want you to blank it out if you can. Please don't worry about the amount of perspiration that's going to appear on my shirt. There will be a lot. <coughs> it is hot. And whenever I have to speak publicly, and whenever I'm under these lights particularly, um, I seem to... My body, body metabolism kicks to another level and I slowly dehydrate. Um, and that's what you're seeing manifest, which is not a bad thing. It's good to melt, I think, every now and again, <laughs> particularly if you're trying to lose weight, as I am. But just so that you are fully aware, as I was at home sitting at our table, table at home this morning and even writing out editing and doing some last-minute changes, I was a, a, whatever, a mess. And I said to Rhonda, I'm going to have to take another shirt. So she, being a very obedient, submissive wife, went and got me another shirt. And then I said, listen, I'll wear this one and then I'll change the other shirt into the second service um, because I, I fully expect to be totally wet there. Have I done that subtly and uh, indirectly enough? <laughs> cool. <laughs> yes. Um, we are working our way through the book of Revelation and we're coming this morning to the best bit which is Revelation chapter 20 which is what I want to read to you this morning but we're not, reading, we're not looking at only chapter 20 we'll also kick back and go back to chapter 19 and uh, begin there from verse 11 so this morning I want to read chapter 20 to you I think it's reasonably straightforward and... Um, I'm going to spend a fair bit of time in, in Revelation 19 and then because I think 20 is so <laughs> straightforward and clear, I don't need to spend a lot of time on that. Um, but somebody I read at somewhere and I like the metaphor, I like the illustration, they said the book of Revelation is like going to an art gallery and as you're walking through the art gallery you're looking at all different sorts of pictures or scenes of things <clears throat> and the only way I could improve the illustration would be to say that it's all digital, you're watching videos, there are different monitors. <clears throat> and some people would say that as you walk through the art gallery and you're looking at either still sh uh, paintings or you're looking at videos, um, for some people there are these visions, these snapshots of what John writes about in Revelation. 
For some people, they're in order, they're in sequence. I mean, there are flashbacks and that, but as you work your way through the art gallery, you're seeing a story unfold. For other people, they see it simply as independent video clips of a vision that he saw. He saw that, and he saw that, and he saw that. And what order does it go in is a bit confusing and they're not that sure about. So people have different views, but I think that's a helpful metaphor that we're looking at pictures, visions, that Jesus gave through his angel to John, which are about the end times. Now this part of the book, chapter 19 and 20, we move from various scenes, but in my mind, they're in sequence. The most profound thing I'll say this morning is chapter 20 follows chapter 19. (laughs) Numerically and historically. My opinion. Of course, there are other preachers, Bible teachers who don't have that opinion, but you know by now they're wrong. So I am going to share with you this morning how I read the scriptures, how I understand them, and I'm not going to spend too much time at all on saying, you know, other people think this and this is why they think it. I'm not doing that. I'm just going to tell you what I think, how I read the scriptures, and if you think the same, then you'll enjoy heaven with me, and if you don't, you'll be closer to the king and perhaps... Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a privilege to be together, to have your word, have the opportunity to read it, to study it, to think about it, to reflect upon it, to fellowship over it. And through it, you not only speak to us, shape us, you minister to us, you're equipping us in order that we might become more like Jesus. Thank you for the presence of his spirit. Thank you for his presence here this morning. May we have ears to hear his voice through his word, not my voice, not my opinion, but him. Grant this blessing, we pray, in his name. And everyone said? Everyone likes this chapter, Revelation 20, because it is one that clearly defines where you stand on the whole issue of the second coming. Whether you take it literally and physically, or whether you take it primarily that way, or whether you take it spiritually and metaphorically, um, and that for some people there is a physical, literal millennium on the earth. For others, obviously, they think, that it isn't. In all of this, now I've said this I think nearly every week, but I'm going to say it again this week, what we have to do is to be as clear as we possibly can be. On the essentials, we must agree. There is a God in heaven, he is triune, the Bible is his infallible word, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he died, he rose again from the dead, he's returning. We must agree on those essential truths. On the other hand, there are other things that we need to think about and we can believe personally, but it's not essential that everybody believes that. Some people believe that a particular version of the Bible is the only version that you should have. God bless them. That's what they believe, that's what they think, and they believe they are being God-honouring in the process. But it's just their belief. It's not an essential, it's here. And then, of course, there's another category, which is simply opinions. You haven't worked it out confidently what you believe, which might be different to what others believe, but it's just an opinion on those, you know, 
lots of people, and you may not even have made up your own mind. But as best we can, as we read this scripture, we need to be as clear as we can, as confident as we can, and as honest as we can. In simply saying, this is God's word. It's important because it's in God's word. So let's read, let's hear God's word. The book of Revelation, chapter 20, and I'm reading from verse 1 in the NIV. John says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key of the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. Next vision, video, video clip. <clears throat> and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They hadn't worshipped the beast or its image. They hadn't received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. And they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him a thousand years. Next video clip. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. And he'll go back to deceive the nations and the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog. And to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of God's people, the city that he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Next video clip. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The heaven and the earth fled from his presence. And there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is God's revelation to us of that which is to come in the future. We're going to go back in time just before this. We're going to pick up the story in back in chapter 19 and Eleanor will put up 19 verses 11 to 16. As we do each one of these clips, these visions, these sections, um, I've asked Eleanor if she can put the scriptures up on the screen for us. Um, of course, we want to encourage you to bring your own Bible, um, but not everybody does, so we want to likewise help you. We want you to be able to see and read um, the Word of God. <clears throat> I won't do that bit. Verse 11, we're just going to work our way through this and then I'm going to make some quick applications. 
The Apostle John saw heaven open, verse 11. It's another vision. It's a clue that he gives all the way through the book. Um, and he sees someone riding on a white horse. The rider is called Faithful and True. We just sang a song about that. And the question is, who is this rider? Now, I think it's very obvious who it is, and that will emerge as we work our way through. This time he will come riding on a white stallion, a white horse. He comes conquering and victorious. First time he came riding a, on a donkey, the foal, colt of a donkey. This time he'll come on a spotless, unblemished, charging stallion. He is called faithful and true. It's impossible for this rider to lie. He is faithful in all that he has said. Faithful in his promises, faithful in his warnings. Faithful and true. In fact, he once said that he was the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. Which means because he's faithful and true, he cannot soften God's standards, but he will come to condemn sin and sinners. It goes on to say in the verse that with justice he judges and wages war. He is the perfect administrator of God's justice. And waging war is in the present tense, which means now, even as he is riding, it is a battle. There is a war coming spiritually. His righteous judgment is going to be the preparation for and an indication of his reign, his righteous reign. At his first coming, he came to be a saviour. Second time, he will come to be a judge. Verse 12 tells us that his eyes are a flame of fire. They're blazing, piercing. Can't hide from them. Nothing will escape his notice. The eyes that once wept over Jerusalem now flash with judgment. On his head, the scripture says, are many crowns. In the book of Revelation previously, we've read about a dragon. He had seven crowns. We read about a beast who had ten crowns. These are all false claims and usurpers to rule and to have authority which is not rightly theirs. But this one, the one coming on the white horse, the true ruler, he has many crowns. An undisclosed multiplicity. He is the rightful heir. He is the ruler who is coming. And in fact, in verse 16, we are given another name. He is the King of Kings. He's the Supreme King. He's the Lord of Lords. He is the Supreme Lord. He's in a class. He's the head of each classification or class. The first time, he wore a crown of thorns. Next time he comes, he'll wear multiple crowns. And then we are told something unusual. He has a name written on him at the end of verse 12 that no one knows but himself. Just like the harlot had a name on her forehead, Babylon the Great. Just like the dragon and the beast had blasphemous names written all over them. So he has a name and another one, but this one written on him. We're not told where and we're not told what it is. In fact, no one knows what it is. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, if you knew the name of somebody, you had some sort of control over them. Well, nobody will be controlling him. Nobody knows this name. <clears throat> it may also indicate that as much as we know about him, there are still things we don't know about him. There are things that are not revealed to us. 
There are many things that have been revealed, but not all. And it alludes to the truth where he said, no one knows the son except the father. It's pointing that there's a mystery still to him. The first time he came, they called him Jesus because he would take sin away from his people. Next time he comes, he will have this undisclosed, unknown name. Verse 13 says that he's wearing a robe and the robe is dipped in blood. It's drenched, it's stained with blood. Not his own, but that of his enemies. That's an awful picture. And you need to read Isaiah 63, where it'll talk about how he comes and back from a battle and he is completely splattered in blood. He is victorious, but he's been incredibly destructive. First time he came, they put a robe on him, mocking him. Next time he come, he'll but dipped, baptised, dripping with blood, not theirs. He has a name for the third time in verse 13. He is the word of God. He's God's revelation to us. That's exactly the same name the author used in his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He is the word of God. The Bible is the written word of God. This person, this rider on this horse, the Lord Jesus, is the living word of God. These two are linked together. This book points to him, talks about him, reveals him, calls us to live in obedience to him. And he will always point us to this book. Many people will do, deny it, disobey it, doubt it, distort it, but he is the word of God. He's not a book, but that's his title. And we call this the word of God because likewise it is from him and it is about him. And we need not only to respect the book, that's why our church is very strong on saying we are a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. The Bible has final authority for us. We have a constitution and we have handbooks and they have authority over us as members, but our constitution and handbook are in submission to the scriptures. So the Constitution says, and so it ought. Verse 14 is a bit of a sidetrack because the first time he came, he came alone. This time he comes, he does not come alone. The armies of heaven followed him. Likewise, they're on white horses. They're dressed in linen. They're white and clean. First time he came alone, this time he'll come with a legion of angels. Are these angels, the armies of heaven? Or are these the saints of God coming? Not told. We're only told they're on white horses and we're only told they're dressed in fine linen white and clean and we are not told that they have any weapons and I suspect they don't. While they ride behind him, they follow him, he alone will fight. He alone will bring in the victory. He alone will destroy the rebels. Verse 15 tells us that out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, which is a bit of a strange image, but you understand what it means. I'm sure he's not a pirate or a buccaneer with a sword in his mouth. It means how powerful, how sharp his words are when he speaks. Like Isaiah 49 verse 2, the prophet says that God has made the words of my mouth like a sword. They're a weapon. As God created with a word, as God destroyed, leveled Jericho with a word, as Jesus many times in the gospel stories, through miracles over disease, over demons, and even over the death, by speaking a word, that's what this is alluding to. His words are powerful. His words are this word. He speaks those words. 
Roman centurion says of him, just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus was absolutely amazed that he understood that spiritual reality. So too do we. Take him at his word. Take his words and promises very seriously. And he loves for us to take them so seriously to quote them back to him. You said he loves that. Just loves it. Because it implies that we're taking him as who being faithful and true. You said so we can fully expect. It then says that he'll speak a word to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And then again this image image of judgment, treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. His eyes are a blaze of fire. He's cranky. He's powerful. And he's coming. That's the video clip. That's the picture. And it ends by saying, and on his robe and at his thigh, where there would have been probably a weapon or a sword normally, but for him it's a name. The fourth time there is a name. In verse, what is it, 11, he is called faithful and true. In verse 13, he is the word of God. In verse 12, it's that mysterious name that nobody knows. And now, finally, verse 16, his name is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Supreme King. Supreme Lord. No one higher, no one more powerful, no one with more authority to rule. We should, as his followers, be glad and rejoice. And if you don't follow him, you should be warned. He's coming. <clears throat> this is one of the clips of this image of the end when Jesus, the king, will return and do exactly what he said he would. There's another picture, another video clip, which is quite different, back in chapter 14. It's also a picture of him, but it's a son of man coming on the clouds and he has a large sickle and he's going to reap the harvest of people of the earth. Same truths, slightly different picture. And just quickly, because this is what challenged me, let's contrast his first coming with his second coming, and then I want to move on. First coming came as a child. Second time, sovereign king. First time came alone. Next time, he's going to arrive with the armies of heaven. First time he came to save. Next time he'll come to judge. First time he came to reveal God's grace. Next time he'll come to dispense God's wrath. First time he came, he took upon himself God's wrath for our sin. Next time he comes, he will place God's wrath on others for their sin. First time he said, he came, he said, come to me. The next time he comes, he will say, depart from me. First time he came, he said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Next time he comes, he's going to say, you go to a place prepared for the devil and his angels. First time he came, wore a crown of thorns. Next time, many crowns. First time he came to reach the nations. Next time he comes, he will strike the nations. First time he came, his eyes wept for Jerusalem. Next time he comes, there'll be a blazing fire. First time he came, he said, love your enemies. Next time he comes, he will be waging war. First time he came, offer full forgiveness was available to anybody. Next time he come, he will dispense pure and perfect justice. First time he came to reconcile. Next time he comes, he will separate. First time he came to serve. Next time he will come to rule. He is faithful and true. He will do what he said. Believers, be glad. 
Those not yet believers, be warned. He's coming. Then there is a next video clip, which is still part of the sequence, but it's a bit more information, and it's a disgusting image. It's revolting. But so was sin, and so was rebellion, and this is a picture of that. Verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. You ever looked at the sun? You look at the sun, you can't see anything else, can you? This angel is going to be so bright. He's standing in the sun. I think he's in front of the sun. It's almost like he's eclipsing the sun. He's bright, he's prominent, and he's loud. He's got a very important message, and it's not to us. It's to the birds of the air. I saw an angel standing in the sun, cried out with a loud voice to all of the birds flying in midair, and he says, come. All of the birds gather. Gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and small, great, free and slave, great and small. It's a revolting picture, isn't it? You ever seen Alfred Hitchcock's movie, Birds? If you haven't, go look it up and watch it, just to scare yourself just at some point. We watched that, I don't know how many years ago, 20, 30, 40? Well, you're only 40, so it couldn't have been much. <laughs> Not supposed to lie, am I? <clears throat> well, you are 40, but you... Yeah, stop. All right. <laughs> Saw it once, haven't forgotten it. That's nothing compared to this. Just as an aside, and I can't do too many of these, did you know that birds migrate uh, from north to south and many of them millions of them actually fly over the land of Israel. They've had to do research because it interferes with the aircraft and the flight paths, particularly of Israel. It's interesting, isn't it? I don't think that's linked to this. I don't think it's just that physical, physiological phenomenon. This is something God's going to do at the end. Is he really going to summon birds? Uh, well, yes. I think he's going to do that. The angel shouts and invites these people to come. I want you to notice at the end of that, he says it's for flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. That phrase, great and small. As you read through Revelation 19 and 20, you'll see that phrase three times. It's back in chapter 19. We didn't read it this morning, but verse 5. Praise our God, all his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. All classes. The great ones of the earth. You know, the... The pharaohs and the kings and the CEOs and the prime ministers and the wealthy and the professors and the highly intelligent and the extremely well-gifted, the great ones and the small, the uneducated, the illiterate, the young, the, uh, the homeless, the, the poor, the disenfranchised, those who are the plebs of society, those whom we hardly know about or notice, great and small have the ability to believe in Jesus and they'll be there on that day praising and honouring him. And if you're not in that group, it'll be the great and the small who will be facing this disgusting slaughter of the birds at the end. Whether it's going to be literal birds or not, can't be firm, can't be dogmatic. What it does mean is this world's going to end in a bloodbath. It is going to be bad right at the end and then almost like in stunning 
unbelief. The king is coming. Verse 19, the next video clip. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. This is foolishness. But the beast um, was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who received the mark, worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. The rest who gathered together... The rest were killed with a sword coming out of the mouth of the rider. He speaks a word and all the birds gorge themselves on their flesh. Just like France sent their battleship off the coast of Syria this week, so at the end the beast will assemble the kings and the armies of the earth. They'll line up their missiles, they'll line up their tanks against him who's coming on his white horse. And the scripture says to us very simply, we call it a battle, but it's not a battle. There's two sides show up, but only one side does something. The beast was captured, along with a false prophet. I love that word captured. I looked it up. I looked it up in all different versions. He was seized. He was arrested. He was taken into custody. He was apprehended grabbed out of the midst of his army and the false prophet and then unique to human history doesn't happen to anybody else the beast and the false prophet the antichrist and his offsider thrown immediately into hell don't pass go don't collect two hundred dollars don't stop off on the way of the great white throne the way there go there right now immediately doesn't happen to anybody else no other human, I should say. It will happen to Satan. Unique in all of history. Right now, hell is empty. There's nobody there. People talk as if Satan is the king of hell or they talk about people who are in hell or demons are in hell or Christians pray to send people to hell. Uh, no. Hell is prepared for the devil and his angels, but they're not there yet. Anyway, that's a sidetrack and I don't have time to go pursuing too many of them. The beast is captured. End of the battle. The rest are killed with a word that comes out of the mouth and the birds come and gobble them all up. That's what it's going to be like at the end. What's the truth for us? Well, when it looks bad, when it looks like the army of the beast and the false prophet are gathering together and things are going really bad for us as followers of Jesus, if we're still here, when it looks bad, then look up. Because he will win in the end. He does allow bad things to happen. But he's got a plan and he's working the plan out. Jesus is the coming king. He's the rider on the horse. He's coming to rule and he's coming to judge. A bright angel is going to summon the birds of the earth to the great slaughter that's going to happen right at the end. There are two groups. Those who follow the lamb and those who don't. The world is going to end in a bloodbath and Jesus will win. Next video clip. I know this is a lot of information, but I'll try and um, make this one as clear as I can. Chapter 20, the passage we read, and I see another vision. Next video clip, next monitor in this art gallery. Then I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, from heaven to earth, which is where Satan has been kicked out and confined to since Jesus returned there at his ascension, Revelation chapter 12. I saw another angel coming out of heaven, 
he had a key. A key to the abyss, a key to the bottomless pit, a key to this shaft where in another part of Revelation, Satan had released demons from there, the locust in Revelation chapter 9. Well, this angel's got the key. And he comes down. Verse 2, he seizes the dragon. Same word. Captured him, arrested him, incarcerates him, apprehends him, takes him into custody. You come with me. And he's identified, the ancient serpent, who was the devil or Satan, and bound him. Because it said he had a chain in his hand, verse 1. And bound him. He's chained up. He's not on a chain around his neck and he's got some movement. He is bound with a chain. Why? Well, it tells us. Um, so that he can't deceive the nations anymore. Verse 3, the beginning of it says he's not only bound with a chain... He picks him up and he throws him into the bottomless pit, into the shaft, into a goal, into a great big shaft like a mine shaft. It's bottomless. Then he puts a door over across the top of it and he seals it. Satan's locked up, sealed away, can't do anything for a thousand years. Now some people believe this is spiritual and that's where Satan is now. I can't read the scriptures that way. I think this is still future because when I read the rest of the New Testament, I read, and I've got 24 instances down here. You can come and talk to me about it later. 24 things that Satan is currently doing, deceiving the minds of unbelievers. He's the lion who's walking around seeking someone to devour. John says the whole world lies under the sway, the influence of the evil one, 1 John 5:19. Jane says that we are to resist the devil. Paul says that he is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And on and on and on and on and on. He's not locked up. He's not confined. He's still having an influence. His head's crushed when Jesus died on the cross and delivered him a blow which has weakened him, staggered him. But he's still powerful. He's still effective. He's not all powerful. And another angel can take him out and does so. And does so, the scripture says, I think, literally, for a thousand years. After that, for some reason, verse 3, he must be set free for a short time. Why? Why let him out? Leave him there. Uh, well, God's got a purpose. And we'll read about it in a minute. Next video clip, verse 4. And following, I saw thrones and seated on those thrones were those who were given authority to judge. This is probably the believers. And it talks about, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for Jesus. Christians. They died. But now they have come to life again. This is the resurrection. Not a spiritual resurrection. I think it's a first resurrection. When Jesus returns on the white horse and he executes judgment, then there'll be a general resurrection. It'll be in two parts. First part, all believers, raptured, resurrected. We all get glorified bodies and we're with the Lord from then on forever. That's what this passage is talking about. Verse 6, blessed and holy are those who share in that first resurrection. Second death, which is hell, has no influence over them, no power over them. What will their role be? They'll be priests of God, representing him, still praying, still serving, still honouring and glorifying him throughout eternity. And they will reign with him on earth for a thousand years. Jesus will be king, and so will we, reigning with him under his leadership, exercising the authority that he has shared and given to us. Next video clip, we go back to Satan. It then says, 
When the thousand years are over, the millennium, Jesus' reign on the earth has come to an end, Satan will be released from his prison. And what will happen? He hasn't changed. He'll go out to deceive the nations into the four corners of the earth and gather them for battle. Even after a thousand years of the Lord Jesus Christ himself reigning with a rod of iron, reigning with God's well-being forcefully implemented, Satan will still be able to find people who don't want anything to do with Jesus. Even after a thousand years of righteous, fair reign, rulership, Satan will still find unbelievers who will be influenced and deceived by him. So during the millennium, I haven't done a lot of teaching on this obviously, but there's a, there are believers, glorified believers, living with and on the planet of those who are not believers who still are in their physical state, still have their human physical body. That's weird. Yep, I agree. That's how I read the scriptures. And those people will age. The prophet says that to die at 100 is to die. What happened then? That's a surprise. The old ages that used to be there before the flood will seem to return. People will live for hundreds of years. And people will have the opportunity to become believers as the truth is taught to them. But at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released. And then in verse 8, it says this phrase, Gog and Magog. And the best way that I think, the way I understand that, <clears throat> it's a, Gog and Magog is referring to a prophecy from Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39. It's about another battle and another horrendous defeat. It's a bit like we use the phrase, it's their Waterloo. Because at Waterloo, Napoleon suffered a huge defeat. And just now the use of the phrase, Waterloo, conjures up that horrendous defeat. Make sense? Hello? Am I talking to myself? Should I close in prayer? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> I will very quickly. Gog and Magog is just a phrase that means that. It's the Waterloo. It's, remember that huge battle, that was huge defeat? Well, that's what this is going to happen. Another one. They march across the earth. The end of verse 9, guess what happened? It's not a battle. They gather for a fight and it's over like that. Fire from heaven comes down and snappo, they're all dead. And then verse 10, the devil is taken, thrown into the lake of fire, along with, note this, along with a false prophet and the beast who have been there for a thousand years and they're still there. What does that tell you? That the lake of fire, otherwise what we call hell, is not where people are annihilated. It's where they will survive and live consciously in torment forever. It's a horrendous concept, but it's justice. And God prepared it, not for us, but for the devil and his angels, which is why he sent Jesus. Because if you don't follow Jesus, that's the destiny that you'll go to. Time has gone. The last paragraph deserves far more time. Then I saw a great white throne, and Jesus is sitting on it. The earth and the heavens fled before him. Creation has ceased. It vanishes away. It came from nothing. It goes to nothing. Creation is undone. There will be a new heavens and a new earth after this. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small. There's that phrase again. Standing before God and books were open. Books, plural. 
And then there is another book, the Book of Life, which is open, and attention is drawn to that one for a very important reason. I'm open to correction on this because I'm just a little bit confused in my own mind about the clarity of it, but as I understand it so far, the books that are opened are going to be things like the Book of Conscience or the, the record of our deeds, our secret deeds and our public deeds. There'll be a record of our words. God has recorded all of that. There's no escape. What you say in public, what you said in private, what you thought in your head and your conscience, all held to account for those who are not believers. If you're a believer, all of that junk, all of that sin has been dealt with. Jesus paid for it. Jesus has washed it away. Christians will have a judgment, but it's not based upon our sin. It's based upon our works, our service, and whether we get a reward or not. It's a different judgment altogether. And here are these people gathered before him. The books are opened, and the book of life is opened. And the book of life, I think, is the book of the record of those who believe in Jesus. And... I'll say it again. I'm open to correction on this. Everyone's name is written in it. Everyone. But if you get to the end of your life and you don't believe, it's crossed out. You often heard it said, I'm sure, and it's probably been taught, and you may have read it, and we may sing songs about it, that when we receive Jesus, then God writes our name in the book. And it's the other way. Everyone's name is in it. But if you don't believe... It's removed. At the end of the passage then, it's not your deeds that will send you to hell. Your deeds will determine the degree of your punishment. It's verse 15. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life. It's Jesus. You've got to believe in him. Otherwise, regardless of how good you are or how great you are, you'll be thrown into the lake of fire. There is no escape. And if you're not in the book, then you're out. It's simple. The last thing I want to say is this, and then I'm going to pray. If my understanding of Revelation is correct, that Satan will be bound in the future, that he's not bound now, that means that he's currently still active in the world, hindered, limited, but he can't be bound, and it's pointless to pray that he will be. He can be resisted. The strong man can be bound. Jesus certainly teaches that. Demons can be bound. Demons can be kicked out. But Satan has this freedom that God allows him to wander around the earth and cause havoc. So therefore, we need to be on the alert. And there are spiritual warfare issues that I might use in our um, devotion at our members' meeting. I'll talk a little bit about that. There are two resurrections. The first one is for those who believe in Jesus. The second one is for those who will go straight before the great white throne. There are two groups, those who believe and those who don't. That's the consistent teaching all the way through Revelation, all the way through Scripture, the question is, which group are you in? And depending on which group you're in, if you're a follower of Jesus, then live like it. If you're not a follower of Jesus, why not? Be warned. He's coming. He's cranky. And he's going to dispense pure justice. He will not be merciful. He will not be gracious. He will be just. And the guilty will be condemned. That's the message we have to share with our loved ones. We are responsible for that.
let me lead you in prayer. We're not going to sing our final song, I don't think. The musos can come and play, though. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, you are the one who is faithful and true. The word of God. King of kings, Lord of lords. As we follow you, help us to be faithful and true. Help us to be living epistles of your word, to be read by others. Help us to take our authority that we have in you as your sons and daughters to fight the spiritual battles, to take our confident stand, to be obedient to you, but most of all, to walk in submission and obedience to you, our King and our Lord. Go before us in the days of this week. Continue to teach us and to enlighten us from your word and cause us to be obedient. Lord Jesus, may your perfect will be done. We pray in your name. Everybody said? Amen. Have a good week, everybody. And members, don't forget, 1.30 members meeting. Be great to see you.